0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by It's Source Radio and our sponsors, the Silver Giving Foundation and the Stewart Foundation. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
1: And I'm John Fensterwald.
0: Well, John, I hope you know that we're just days away from the long-awaited anxiety-producing November election when Californians will decide issues we've been talking about over the past few months. Uh, Prop 15, the tax on commercial property. Prop 16, the restoring affirmative action to college hiring and admissions, which looks like it's going to have a tough road convincing voters to approve. And maybe we'll know who will be the
1: president for the next four years at some point. By maybe, Lewis, of course you mean we may not know the winner of the race by Election Day, and that's just one reason that this has become an unusually exasperating and complex election. And that complexity, along with the divisive, contentious tone of it, has made it a especially difficult subject to teach. This week we'll talk about how high schools have covered the election, or in more cases than not, decided not to teach about the election.
0: Well, the other interesting development is that schools across the state are opening for in-person instruction at an accelerating pace. This week, EdSource released the most comprehensive information yet on plans of schools throughout the state to return to in-person instruction.
1: Well, let us in, Lewis. what'd you find?
0: There's just a huge variation in how kids are being taught right now. We found that out of the 58 counties in the state, 21 counties are offering some form of in-person instruction in all or most of the districts in that county. And in about 20 counties, the schools in those counties are pretty much sticking with distance learning, at least for now, and planning not to come back to school at least until January. And of course, that's really unclear if that's going to happen. And uh, the remaining 17 counties are really kind of all over the map. Some districts are offering in-person instruction and others are sticking with distance learning.
1: So it's really a time of transition. And I guess a lot of districts are deciding over the next couple of weeks what they're going to do between now and January.
0: And one district that's
1: gone further than almost any other district in
0: the state to offer in-person instruction for five full days at least for its elementary school districts is Capistrano Unified in Southern California. To look at what in-person instruction is looking like, we'll talk with Capistrano Unified Superintendent Kirsten Vital, as well as with El Dorado County Superintendent Ed Mananzala.
1: But first, the presidential election as taught in high schools.
0: Well, John, this should be a pretty exciting time
1: for high school civics teachers, right? Well, from outside the classroom, it might look like an extraordinary opportunity to cover a fascinating race at perhaps a pivotal moment in U.S. history, but as I wrote this week, it has proven a very challenging task, and many teachers appear to have shied away from directly covering the campaign and issues that President Trump and Joe Biden have raised. Part of the problem is that President Trump has been a polarizing, divisive figure, so debates can get heated. But there are other challenges that distance learning has compounded. So we thought we'd look at the issues with someone who has dealt with them. As a teacher educator, we have on the line Devin Hess, who is program coordinator for the UC Berkeley History Social Science Project. He is also co-leading Discord in Crisis, the 2020 Election, which is a three-part webinar for high school teachers on how to approach the presidential election. Welcome Devin. Thank you. What I have learned from the article is that distance learning seems to have created its own set of challenges for teachers who are overloaded, which may make it harder to communicate with students and get them to be open. Is that what teachers are telling you as well?
2: One of the challenges of distance learning is knowing who your class is and who the students are. And when you're trying to, as a teacher, have controversial conversations, which inevitably they will be around this election, knowing who your students are is really important. Because you have to, as a teacher, provide a safe space for all those students to be able to express their opinions and have it in somewhat of a structured manner that different views are represented. And with the polarization that's going on right now, that is challenging even in the best of circumstances. We have teachers we're working with who literally have not seen the faces of their students because their students won't turn on their their cameras. Some students just simply don't participate. They may do the assignments in written form, but they're not necessarily verbalizing their feelings and opinions and participating in the classroom conversations. So the teacher, if they're trying to have a conversation that could verge into being very controversial and and uncomfortable, isn't as equipped as they would have been uh, in other situations.
0: So let me ask you, teachers are supposed to have benefit of academic freedom. I mean, that's why they have tenure, so that teachers can't be fired for political views and so on. I mean, this is concerning that teachers would feel constrained that, uh, you know, somebody might hear something or get upset about something they've said. And that seems almost inevitable in the current climate.
2: We have had teachers literally say to us, My administration told me not to have controversial conversations in my classroom because parents are getting upset. And that was even before the distance learning platform. And now we have situations where there are parents who can be watching over the shoulder of the teachers and listening in real time and not just relying on the student coming back and perhaps accurately and perhaps inaccurately reporting what went on in the class. So the teachers are not sure. It's a territory that's not tested. Also, there hasn't been this level of sort of antagonism around sort of watching and and polarization around the questions that might be raised and conversations that might happen in the classroom. So teachers don't even know how far they can go. Um, We have had teachers with just mild mentions of issues around how Trump is working and behaving and policies and things be pulled into the principal's office or get letters from
1: parents is one of the problems that many of the discussions go on in breakout rooms, and they're worried that what will happen when the teachers aren't there.
2: Exactly, because in a classroom setting, the teacher is able to monitor those conversations to some extent. In a breakout room, you don't know what's going on. And I have actually worked with teachers who don't even want to create breakout rooms because without knowing who the students are, they can't be sure that their peers, peer-to-peer, are safe. There can be a lot of bullying and a lot of difficult situations that students are put into from their peers. So yeah, that's definitely a constraint.
1: Any particular advice that you would give to teachers to, uh, you can't solve all these problems, but particular advice as to how to approach a controversial subject uh, in a remote setting?
2: I think the main thing is that we have to have the courage, and I encourage teachers to have the courage, to figure out what works in their setting because the alternate option of of just not having the conversations and especially if things become really challenging after the election with a lot of legal and social and even civil disputes and conflicts and so if anybody is is in a position to be able to help students navigate what could be a very difficult time it's us as history teachers
0: We're talking with Devin Hess, he is an academic program coordinator for the UC Berkeley History Social Science Project. You know, it just strikes me that it seems like this could be just a tremendously lost opportunity if teachers are not able to really engage with their students on these rather extraordinary events that are playing out, in part because my sense is that, particularly at the high school level, students are more informed and more engaged with these issues than perhaps any time before.
2: Well, they know what's going on, but they also have a ton of misinformation about what's going on. So that even amplifies the importance of teachers dealing with and, and talking about it. Because if you just let it pass, then the student's perception of this period of history is a blend of who knows what, right? Because we you know, just pick up, scroll, scroll through the internet and you can have any version of history you want. Part of what our goal is, is to help the kids sort of have the lens of an historian. And that means doing the work of an historian to make sense of it, to source it, to check it, to use historical thinking concepts, to look at perspective, to look at the ethical dimension, to understand cause and continuity, and and just these sort of historical thinking concepts. And if we're not doing that, why are we teaching history? Really, it's about empowering a whole future generation of our country, of our citizens, And this is a perfect opportunity, because we're seeing it play out in real time, to hone those skills.
1: Well, we thank you for joining us Uh, today. We've been speaking with Devin Hess, academic coordinator for the UC Berkeley History Social Science Project. Thank you for the work you're doing with teachers to prepare them for this momentous election.
2: Well, Thank you.
0: Distance learning has been the default method of education for almost all students in California for the last few months, but that is changing pretty rapidly. As I mentioned uh, when we started the podcast, EdSource's survey found that schools in 21 counties in California, admittedly mostly rural counties, are all offering in-person instruction of some kind.
1: Nonetheless, all districts that are preparing to go back will want to see how others that have already opened made that decision and, and how they've been faring. Capistrano Unified with 47,000 students in Orange County it's the seventh largest district in the state and it may be the largest district to send all of its students back to school for in-person instruction. For some districts it may offer a model so we're fortunate to have on the line Superintendent Kirsten Vital. Welcome Superintendent. Hello. So you're doing what few districts have ventured to do which is to offer full-day instruction for at least for your elementary students. How does that work and how's it been going?
3: You know, it's such a community value and really the value of our board of trustees to try to get K-5 students back full time um, if that's what their families choose. So we actually have three models, K-5, program A, which is an extended learning model, about 65 percent of our K-5 students and 500 more families more recently um, asking for it where kids can be back full time, full day, in which they first have a literacy numeracy block of time with their teacher. So half the students come in the morning with their teacher, and then in the afternoon, they're with either a paraprofessional or another teacher learning, whether it's science, social studies, arts, music, an extension of the learning from the morning, and then you could do the opposite, right? So students could do the extended learning in the morning and then literacy and numeracy block in the afternoon. And that's how we're doing that, that split.
1: So they're not inside for half a day. They're out in tents for part of the day. Why did you do that and how's that working?
3: You know, it's really incredible. It's incredible to see the tents, little blue shaded structures, some of them up to 18 on a district campus where um, young people in tables socially distance or under those little tents, and they're able, with their Chromebooks out and Wi-Fi available, to be able to do their lessons. And the reason why we did that, quite frankly, is that we have used every possible indoor space that we could to put these small groups of young people, and the reality is we just didn't have enough space. And with the timeline and the timing, just thought creatively about doing these 10 by 10 tents that kids can learn under.
0: Without getting too technical, why couldn't you do this at the high school level?
3: You know, the complexity of so many different courses and so many students, you know, I have high schools up to 3,000 students. Having to figure out, again, doubling my teaching staff, it's just a huge expense. In this particular case, we were able to use CARES Act money to hire paraprofessionals, and those paraprofessionals are really facilitating the learning and the lesson planning of that credentialed teacher. And that's why we were able to do it in K-5, because again, it's many different adults, really what parents are doing at home, we're just doing on campus. So touch a
1: little bit more on high school, you're in a hybrid situation in high school, right? And And how's that going?
3: We have a schedule in which on Mondays, it's called Virtual Monday, all students are on the computer at home, and then two days a week they're in person, and two days a week they're at home. We are piloting, expanding those instructional minutes six twelve by students both being at home online with the teacher in the classroom. It's just that half the student's are in the classroom and half the students are online. So we're doing some piloting of that. Otherwise, in many classrooms, students then are doing the independent work on the days that they're home.
1: Are students observing social distancing and wearing masks? And have you had any infections among students and how does that go on?
3: So yes, we have all the social distancing in place. We also require masks of all students pre-K through 12th grade. And we have the same requirement of employees and hand washing and we put in more hand washing stations in campuses that had fewer sinks, just so that we had all of those things available to keep employees and students safe. Um, We have to date, I believe, a dozen cases and we have a district dashboard so you could Go to our dashboard, it's updated every day at 5 o'clock. That will show you how many cases we have and what school site the case is at. I'm um, so important, I think, to be transparent with the community and with our employees on those cases.
1: Who is teaching the students who are at home, and what percentage of your teachers cannot return to the classroom for health and other reasons?
3: I think currently we have 78 employees on leave of some kind. We um, negotiated in our MOU for secondary teachers a way in which there is a substitute in the classroom which then still allows for that teacher to teach online. So they're at home teaching online while the substitute is supervising students. So that's one of the creative ways that we thought through.
0: Talking with Superintendent Kirsten Vital from Capistrano Unified, Dr. Erica Penn, who is the acting state health officer in Sacramento this week at a hearing said, it's really a balancing the risk of bringing kids back versus learning loss and trying to minimize learning loss. Do you see that as kind of a a balancing act that you're doing right now?
3: Yeah, I do think that there's a balancing act between learning loss and I also worry about the mental health of students because we wanna make sure that they're not isolated, that they don't experience depression that they're fully engaged and that they're not losing motivation. I see these children, when we brought them back, so happy to be with their friends, to be with their teacher, understanding that they're still wearing a mask and they're social distancing. But that just joy of being together is pretty amazing.
1: Well, we've been speaking with Superintendent Kirsten Vital. Good luck and thank you for joining us. And we'd like to check back soon to see what other challenges you've overcome and whether Parents and teachers are still excited to be back. Thank you. For many districts, setting up a program of testing
0: students for the virus, not only students, but staff as well, and having contact tracing in place are prerequisites for returning to school for in-person instruction. El Dorado County, it's a largely rural county between Sacramento and Lake Tahoe, has been able to establish a system of testing and contact tracing that's enabled all 15 school districts to reopen for in-person instruction. We're pleased to have on the line Ed Manansala. He's superintendent of the El Dorado County Office of Education, and he was instrumental in coordinating this new system. Welcome, superintendent. Great to be with you. I think one of the big problems, and a lot of people are very concerned about this, is what schools are doing to solve the whole issue of testing and then contact, contact tracing if somebody tests positive. So how have you dealt with that? Or have you, have you been able to deal with that?
4: We have been able to deal with it. Part of the requirements under the California Department of Public Health was to establish a surveillance testing system in addition to a responsive testing system.
0: Sorry, Superintendent, Uh, when you say responsive testing, what, what is that?
4: Responsive testing is when you are identifying an individual who may possess the symptoms of COVID and are in need of a responsive test. Whereas a surveillance test is intended to scan a system to determine if there are any asymptomatic individuals potentially with the COVID virus. And and that is the
0: big challenge, the one you just mentioned, the asymptomatic. So what did you guys do?
4: Well, in El Dorado County, uh, based on a partnership with the Board of Supervisors, El Dorado County Public Health, COVID-DX, which is a company that administers COVID surveillance testing and our education system, which includes the 15 school districts and our county office of education. We establish a partnership to be able to create a surveillance testing system for all 3,500 educators. That includes our teaching staff and support staff, which often we refer to as our classified staff and certificated staff.
0: But how did that work? Because I know that under the health guidelines, you are supposed to test everyone once every two months at least, so half the staff. But are you able to do testing even for those who are asymptomatic?
4: We have, and we started that system on September 28th. So we are just finishing up our fifth week implementing this COVID surveillance testing system. And the way that we do that is we've identified five different locations in El Dorado County. And depending on the day, we'll have a specific number of schools and districts report to one of these five sites and be able to uh, administer their, their test.
0: One of the things we didn't make clear was that El Dorado County was never in the purple zone. So relatively low incidence of COVID up there. I do have to ask you about the students. Because I seem to recall the state guidance doesn't require you to test the students. Uh, That was kind of a gray area. So what's happening with the students? They, of course, could be carriers as well.
4: If a student is identified with the symptoms, there are protocols that have been established. And they will go to their primary care provider. And the determination if the student will be tested will occur at that level. But protocols are in place to determine if a student needs to be quarantined or isolated for 14 days if they are demonstrating symptoms, regardless if they are positive or not. We know that there are students who've contracted the virus outside of the school system and have come in. I'll give you one example. Probably within our first two months of opening up school, we had a fifth grader at an elementary school who had tested positive It wasn't a result of COVID spread inside of the school, but once we identified this positive student, they were isolated for 14 days. The 10 students that were in the student's cohort had to quarantine uh, for 14 days, including the teacher. But the protocols kept the entire system running smoothly, meaning the school remained open, students and staff and the community were made aware of the positive test, and Things continue to run smoothly.
0: We're talking with Edmond Ansala, Superintendent of Schools in El Dorado County, about tackling one of the most difficult aspects of opening schools. Thanks for joining us today.
4: Thank you. Good to be with you.
1: You know, Lewis, there's at least one district in El Dorado County, the Black Oak Mine District, that's offering instruction five days a week, as are Rockwin Unified in Sacramento County, and of course, Capistrano Unified. As Superintendent Vital explained, how common is that, by the way? It's actually not very common at all. We just can find
0: a handful of districts across the state. You've, you've heard about, I think, all of them <laughs> that we know of that are offering five-day-a-week instruction. Uh, in most cases, there's hybrid instruction, students coming in half-days, either going Monday-Wednesday schedule, Tuesday-Friday schedule, or Monday-Thursday, lots of variations. But we're gonna have to see how all of this plays out in the next few months. And one thing we do know is that as more and more counties get out of this dreaded purple zone, get into the red zone that allows them to open schools for in-person instruction, they're gonna come under more pressure from parents and others to open the school. So uh, we're going to be seeing many more kids back in school. And it's going to be interesting to see how many will be able to bring kids back in five days a week. Well, we'll report them as we see them. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and Ed Source's own Justin Allen. Please subscribe
1: wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the election results, at least the ones that we will have by then.
0: Can't wait, John. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And
1: I'm John Fensterwald.
0: Thanks for listening, and as we said, we'll be back next week with an election special podcast.